We've been talking about authenticity, authenticity now for a couple of Sundays, and we're going to continue that theme. And before we do, I want to tell you one of my favorite stories. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit. I wouldn't say the word crude, but I, I just love the story. And I tested out on Mark earlier this week, and uh, he got a kick out of it. So if if he laughed at it, it's got to be safe, right? No. There's a lot of confidence in you, brother. You hadn't been here very long. Uh, Joe and his wife were going to the mall, and uh, they got out of the car, and they made their way through the, one of the entrances of the mall, and they happened to pass by a pet store. And as they passed by the pet store, there was a parrot that was perched just outside, sort of to lure customers in to purchase maybe not only a parrot but other animals. And as Joe walked by, the parrot squawked at Joe, and he said, Joe, come here. Joe, come here. Well, Joe was a little perplexed. I mean, how in the world did this bird know his name? And he said it again, Joe, come here. So he decided, curiosity got the best of him. He would go over there and see what the bird wanted. And he came up to the bird and he said, what? The bird paused for a second, looked at him and looked at his wife and said, you're fat and your wife is ugly. That infuriated Joe. He went in there and got the owner of the store and came out and said, this bird just said, I was fat, my wife is ugly. I'm, I'm enraged by that. You need to do something. So the, the, the pet owner went over to the bird, thumped him on the head and scolded him. He said, don't you ever do that again. That is rude. Don't, don't repeat that ever again to this man. Just don't do that. And with that, he was satisfied and went on. Two hours later, they had to go buy the pet store again on the way to the car. And Joe was anticipating as he was going by the, the, you know, the store what the parrot might say next. And so the anxiety began to well up. And as he began to approach the pet store, sure enough, the parrot was still there in the perch. And the parrot saw Joe and he said, Joe, come here. Ah, Joe, come here. Joe thought, okay, not again, but I'm going to go test out and see if the scolding you know, works. So he went over to the parrot and he leaned over and said, what? The parrot looked at him, looked at his wife and said, you know what? What do you do with that? (laughs) It's hard for us to imagine pets being that intentionally bad. Right? Is it that hard for us to imagine then people being bad? I mean, the fact of the matter is that everyone in here is human, and because we are human beings, we are prone to being wicked. We are prone to being evil. We are prone to being sinful. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 has just raised the standard of perfection, and he is demanding of his disciples a perfect life. And those who are listening, who desire to be his disciples, and those who have already committed to be his disciples, are perplexed because they know that there's no way in the world that any way on God's green earth are they going to be able to rise above this level of perfection that Jesus is demanding of his disciples. A righteousness far superior than that of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And so he gave them this beautiful prayer in the Sermon on the Mount as to how to pray. 
And in this beautiful prayer on the Sermon of the Mount, knowing that his disciples were going to be perplexed by the standard of perfection and their inability to rise to the level of this perfection and and, and this anticipation that they would then sin, he gives them in the Lord's Prayer this aspect about requesting forgiveness on a regular, daily, habitual basis. Every day, multiple times as we pray, we are to acknowledge our sin and to ask for forgiveness. He assumes that his disciples, just by their very human nature, are not going to rise to the level of perfection and live a perfect life. And so he includes in the Sermon on the Mount, in this prayer, an opportunity for them then to become right with God through confession and repentance. At the conclusion of that prayer, he gives them two verses that sort of stand alone, yet they're connected to the Sermon on the Mount and to the prayer that Jesus has just given to his disciples called the Disciples' Prayer in regard to forgiveness because it is here in verse 14 and verse 15 that we learn that Jesus' disciples are not only demanded or required to ask for forgiveness from God, but they're also required then to extend forgiveness to those who trespass against them. He anticipates and assumes that not only is the disciple going to fall short of a perfect life, but those whom the disciple is acquainted with or associated with, maybe disciples and maybe not, because of their humanity, they're also going to be in need of forgiveness. And so he lays out these, in these beautiful two verses that we're going to study exactly what it means to be forgiven and what it means to forgive. Now, the reason why we're going to lump these two together is because you cannot separate our or my as a personal disciple being forgiven as I extend forgiveness. They're sort of lumped together, yet they are separate in the Sermon on the Mount. Very distinct, yet very connected things that make out what we believe in the Sermon on the Mount is this whole concept of forgiveness. So as we think about authentic forgiveness, because there is such a thing as Forgiveness that's not authentic, or forgiveness that's not practiced, or forgiveness that is hypocritical. Uh, Hypocritical forgiveness may be a forgiveness that, you know, I forgive you, but you never forget it, or you never let them forget it. It's like the couple that was uh, in counseling, and he said, my wife, every time we get into argument, becomes historical. He said, don't you mean hysterical? He says, no, historical. She continues to bring up all the history of my past sins and failures every time we argue. And we we sort of laugh at that, but that's reality because forgiveness doesn't mean forgetfulness, yet forgiveness does mean that we are to release them from that debt. But we like to hold on to the wrongs that others have done unto us. And we like to remind them or remind ourselves of the hurt of the pain. And we, we sort of hold on to that, that disappointment or that, that, that failure that they've committed to us. And we want to hold them accountable. We want them to suffer. We want them to pay. And husbands and wives can get into that game playing. And children in regard to their parents and even church members can play that game to the point where that unforgiveness becomes bitterness and the end result of bitterness only impacts the one that is holding on to the unforgiving spirit and to the harm or the hurt that's been done to them. And Jesus, knowing that, gives us, as his disciples, how to enjoy authentic forgiveness and how to practice it. So I want to take a look at this text as we take a look at verses 12 and verses 14 and 15 lumped together today. I know we've already looked at verse 12, but we're going to lump these together because I think they do to go together, yet they are separated. But let's take a look at that. First of all, I want us to go to the text and I want us to see then the premise for forgiveness. There's a premise. 
There is a root, there is a base for an opinion or for a truth or for what I might want to call a, um, a, a proposition, so to speak, is the word that I'm looking for. There's a proposition here of a truth. And, and the, the proposition about forgiveness is something that I've already alluded to. Everyone here in this room needs forgiveness. Every one of us needs forgiveness, and every one of us in here needs to forgive others. Without exception, all of us need to see forgiveness from God, and all of us need to forgive those who have offended or who have hurt us. And Jesus reminds us of that in his Sermon on the Mount in the disciples' prayer when he says in verse 14, and forgive us our debts. He's reminding his disciples that there's an intimate need that we have for personal forgiveness between us and God. And when we do not seek forgiveness from God, it impacts and affects our intimate love relationship with him. And he says, as and on a personal level, every one of my disciples needs forgiveness. He anticipates and he assumes that his disciples are not going to be able to live a perfect life. And because of that, they are going to sin. They are going to commit a trespass or a sin. They're not going to live up to the perfect righteous standard that he set for his disciples. And as a result of that, we're going to have to come to him and admit and confess our sin. We need forgiveness. Every disciple in here on a regular basis needs to come to the Father and say, Lord, forgive me for I have sinned. Jesus assumes and anticipates that his disciples are going to sin. But let's don't Let's don't go beyond that by thinking, well, if he assumes and anticipates that I'm going to sin, then therefore it's okay for me to sin. He gives me permission to sin. Not so. And yet he knows in advance that you are not going to live a perfect life. I'm, I'm reminded of, of, of uh, at the end of the book of Matthew where he and Simon Peter were having a discussion about his soon departure and his crucifixion on the cross. And he turns to Simon Peter and said, this very night you are going to deny me three times. You're going to deny me. And he said, Lord, I will not deny you three times. He said, yeah, three times. He said, no, I'm not. He said, before the rooster crows this very night, you will deny me three times. Jesus lovingly already knew and anticipated his disciples' denial of him three times. And yet when he rose from the dead, he sought Simon Peter out for a one-on-one -on -one personal encounter with him to redeem him and to bring him back into a right relationship with the Father through the Son. Jesus knew that his disciples were not and could not and would not be perfect. And so therefore he says, you're going to need to come to me on a regular basis, on a daily basis, and admit and confess your sin. And once we then acknowledge and admit that we're not perfect and that we, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, have not lived a perfect life and we need to seek forgiveness from the Father, we then need to come to terms with this interactive need of us forgiving others. Because as we interact with others on a day-to-day -day basis, they are either going to intentionally or unintentionally sin against us. I mean, it's in the text. He said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus anticipates the fact that we are going to have to need to forgive those who have debts against us, who have sinned against us. They have done something against us, right or wrong, intentional or unintentional, and now we've been hurt and there's a debt that's been incurred. There's a payment that is necessary. There is a demand for 
compensation. And he says that we must then assume that reality that they are going to do something that's going to offend us and hurt us. And in that indebtedness, we are then to release them from that debt. I don't care how good intended you are as a husband, you are not going to be the perfect spouse. Amen, ladies? Wives, you are never going to be the perfect spouse. Children, teenagers, your parents will never be perfect parents. But guess what? You'll never be the perfect child. Can I get amen to that from the parents? Grandparents, as cute and adorable as your grandchildren are, they're not perfect. I know we think the grandchildren somehow have a special dispensation with God, but that's not reality. Last weekend, I just had a house full of them, and I know how carnal and how depraved they are. They'll reach over and pinch the other and then claim they didn't do anything. And the other will retaliate and pinch back. And then dad comes in. Not grandpa, but dad. (laughs) I stay out of those things. That's the advantage of being a grandparent. There's nothing negative that goes on between me and my grandkids. You (laughs) You don't have them very long. You know what I'm talking about? And you want everything to be positive. And candy is always a good option. But here in this interactive relationship that we have, even as fellow disciples, no matter how well intended we are in a fellowship like Emmanuel, there are going to be times you're going to rub elbows with somebody and they are not going to be righteous. And you're going to be in this this area in this interactive relationship where you're going to have to be extending forgiveness for something that they have incurred a debt upon you because intentionally or unintentionally they have hurt you. And you're going to want to, you're, you're going to want compensation. So the premise is that I, I think as we begin with forgiveness, all of us in here need forgiveness and all of us are going to need to forgive. For Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, and you might want to turn there and put your finger there. We're going to come back to that a little bit later on. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about forgiveness and he, he says, you're going to have to forgive your brother. And Simon Peter asked the question that I think many of us have asked the Lord many times. I think you've asked this in maybe a different way, but you've asked this. And Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I mean, he's being generous here. Seven times they've done this. And Jesus says to them, to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's an infinite number that he's talking about. And what he's saying to us is that we are then to extend forgiveness to each other indefinitely, without limitations and without conditions, an an infinite number of times. How many times? As many as it takes. And so that's the premise of forgiveness. I need it, you need it, we need it. And I need, you need, and we need to forgive each other. Because let's, fake it, let's face it, as, as close as I am to perfection, and I'm pretty close, just kidding. For those of you who don't know me, it's a standing joke here. 
I am going to do something you're not going to like, and you're going to be offended. You may do something that I'm not going to like and be offended, and we are commanded in Scripture to forgive. So that's the premise. I need it, you need it, we need it, and we not only need it to seek it with God, we need to extend it for each other. Number two, let's look at the practice of forgiveness. Now, how do I practice forgiveness? If I need it with God and I need to forgive others around me, how do I practice the reality? How do I avoid hypocrisy? How do I do it? If I am to extend forgiveness and seek forgiveness from God, how do I, how do I make it a reality? Well, first of all, I, I think it, we see in the text, I must ensure forgiveness for myself because I cannot extend forgiveness to others until I am in a relationship in which I am under the grace and the forgiveness of God because I'm convinced that I can't forgive unless I understand how I am being forgiven by the Father. And here he says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, he says to us, and forgive us our debts. Forgive us, those of us who are your disciples. Forgive us as your disciples, God. Forgive us of our debts. And in 1415, he said, if you forgive others of their trespasses. He's talking about extending forgiveness to others. But notice what it says, secondly in that verse, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That indicates to me that the person who is extending forgiveness also desires forgiveness from God. And who of us in here does not want to be forgiven from God of all of our sin? Because he says here, if we don't forgive our brothers and our sisters, we won't be forgiven of the Father. That's a pretty good motivator for most of the disciples. Because if I don't extend forgiveness toward those who hurt me and offend me and who are a debt toward me, how then can I expect God then to forgive me when I don't reciprocate that forgiveness toward others. And so he says here that we must ensure forgiveness for ourselves. But forgiveness, while available, is not automatic. Because if it were automatic, then everyone on the planet would have the forgiving grace of God. But forgiveness is only found through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's only found through faith in Christ through the act of repentance. For without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. I'm going to say that again. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. What is repentance? Repentance is an admission that you have sinned, and it's an acknowledgement that you have a debt toward God, and it's turning your back on that sin and turning away from that sin and committing then to the Father with his help never to repeat that act or that action again. To repent. You can say, say, forgive me and just keep enjoying the sin. That's not authentic repentance. Salvation only comes when we repent. And, and, and sanctification only continues through the act of repentance. You'll never move into the likeness of Christ and daily being conformed to his image without true repentance from God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to look at this text very quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. In this second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that has already received a letter from him. Titus has been sent to the Corinthian church with a letter. And upon reading the letter, they were grieved in their hearts. Because after having read the letter, they were suddenly convicted of their sin against God. 
And because of that conviction, they grieved in their spirits. And that grievance led them to repentance. And Paul is about to say, in the words that we're about to read, in this letter that he penned to the Corinthian church, I am not excited, nor am I rejoicing over the fact that you read my letter and were convicted and grieved, but I am rejoicing the fact that you were convicted, you grieved in your heart, and that grievance then led you to repentance, and that repentance has reconciled you unto the Father. Notice he says in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Notice verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Repentance led us to salvation, but repentance leads us to sanctification without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The problem that most of us have in grieving over our sin is that we are grieving over the consequence of sin and not over the conviction of the sin and the cost that it brought Jesus on the cross. Most of us are grieved, we are sorrowful, we are, we are upset because look what this son, this sin, this son, look at what this sin has resulted in my life. They're not grieving over the sin and the cost and the sacrifice of Christ, but of the consequence of the sin. And I believe that's what the apostle is saying here is a worldly grief. Where a godly grief is a grief that comes as a result of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You are saddened as a result of the cost and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And now the debt that has been paid for you on that cross. And you are grieved in your heart. You are sorrowful for your sin and you repent of that sin. And I wonder how much of our repenting comes from genuine godly sorrow and remorse. Not over the consequence of sin but over the conviction of what that sin has cost Christ on the cross and the debt that has been paid on your behalf by God the Father through his Son and that beautiful sacrifice. I think most of us honestly would say I'm more remorseful over the consequence than I am the sin itself. Because the reality is the consequence lasts a whole lot longer, doesn't it? Because it can last a lifetime. When you make a choice, a decision to sin and defy the standards and the precepts of God. And we have to live with that for the rest of our lives. And I there challenge you to rethink how you grieve over your sin and grieve over the sin itself and the cost that it brought Christ on the cross, not the consequence of your decision. And here we need to ensure forgiveness for ourselves. And once we attain that forgiveness for ourselves, we need to then extend forgiveness to others because Jesus then says in verse 14 and verse 15, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. There's a condition here in which we must extend forgiveness to others in whom we have a relationship with and who hurt us, and who grieve us. And based upon that intentionality or that unintentional act, now there's a debt, a payment that's expected because there's a hurt that demands justice. And so he says to to us in the text in Luke 17, 3 and 4, turn in your text if you want to turn there. If you notice in the text too, in, in verse 
12, he said, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, as we have also, as we have already forgiven our debtors. It's interesting in Luke 17, verse 3, in this forgiving, extending forgiveness to others, because we have to repent of our sin before God, before forgiveness is extended to us, did you know that before we are expected to forgive others, that they must repent as well? There's a scripture that says that. Where does it say that? Well, it says it in Luke chapter 17 from the very words of Jesus, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, and that word if doesn't mean a proposition or doesn't mean maybe there's a possibility, but when your brother sins. Now, keep in mind that, that, that you're not destined to your sin. You have a choice to sin or not to sin. But when you do sin, when they sin, when your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. When is forgiveness extended to those who have hurt us? If they repent. And once they repent, we are then expected to forgive. And if he sins against you seven times, notice it says, in a day. I don't like that, do you? I said, I don't like that, do you? No. If he sins seven times in the same day, remember the seven times 70? It's unconditional. There's, there's no, no aspect about time frame or, or number here. And turns to you seven times saying, I repent. He says you must forgive him. So every time your husband repents, wives, you must forgive your husband. No matter how many times during the day. He acts the way that he acts or does the things that he does that annoys the heck out of him. I know that never happens in your marriage, right? Husbands, when your wife hurts, offends, or does something to you on a daily basis, and she says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, what's your response? They've admitted that they've sinned and they've asked for forgiveness. They've abandoned that sin. Now they're asking forgiveness and you must then forgive. As a disciple of Christ, as a believer of Jesus, we have no option as a disciple except to release them from their debt. We don't hold them accountable or responsible. We release it and we let it go. It's interesting that, that he says you must, you must forgive him or them. But forgiveness here also has an aspect of repentance, for without repentance there can be no reconciliation and no forgiveness. And so we see the practice of forgiveness, which is a pretty tough practice. It's not only put upon the one who's been offended, but also there's a responsibility on the one who has offended the other, that the one who is the offendee needs to repent. But many times what happens, and I've learned in this whole aspect about forgiveness, is the one that has offended the other has no idea that they've offended you. Does that ring true, ladies? Your husband has no idea he's hurt your feelings. He has not a clue that he hadn't said the right thing or done the right thing at the right time before you needed it so that when you got to the point you needed it, he wasn't there to answer it. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are smiling, but you're not saying much. And so sometimes... 
you need to go to your spouse or to your child or to your parent or to your brother and sister, your disciple in Christ, and say, you know what? I don't know if you intended to do this or not, but you hurt my feelings. And if that brother repents or that sister or that spouse or that parent or that child say, I'm sorry, forgive me, I repent, what should we do to forgive? It's interesting Friday night, by the way, thank you for all of you who gave candy to that incredible time. And it was interesting to see how when darkness hit the neighborhood and the cold actually got, you know, settled down, how many people came in inside the, the place. I mean, there was a, a mass entrance and a mass exodus, but, but it, it really filled up. And, and thank you for all that candy and for serving. That was a wonderful opportunity for us. I call it a bridge event to connect with the people in our community. And there was a young lady who was sitting at the table, and I went over, and I was just talking to her, and she said, I can't do the laser tag. I'm being punished. And I said, why are you being punished? Well, I disobeyed my, um, my mother. And I said, well, have you gone and said, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again? She said, I tried that in a letter, but it didn't work. And I said, well, why don't you try that in person and say it to her from your heart and mean it, and maybe that'll be enough to let you go into the laser tag. I know that sometimes we need to punish our children, but I think sometimes we need to teach our children that genuine repentance brings reconciliation. Not all the time, but I think sometimes that's a good lesson for parents to teach children. Because when there's repentance, there's always reconciliation with God the Father. And so should there be between us as disciples of Christ. We've seen the practice. Now let's quickly and finally look at the promise of forgiveness. Because once we repent, there is a promise of forgiveness. And the promise of forgiveness is found in verse 12. And forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It, it, it's a presumptuous thing here where Jesus is telling into his disciples in this disciples' prayer that when we ask for forgiveness, forgiveness is always available. Again, you see in verse 14 and verse 15, you see that forgiveness is desired from the Father, and when we forgive, we then get what we desire and what we want from the Father, which is reconciliation and redemption. It's interesting to me that, that the promise of forgiveness is sure to those of us who are disciples who repent. We can be sure that we've been forgiven. For 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 1 John 1, 8 says... If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Both in 12, 14, and 15, and here in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, we learn that as a transgressor of righteousness, a breaker of the law, indebted to the Father, if we confess our sin, he who is the Father is faithful and he is just in that he will forgive us of our sin and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, I don't have to walk around carrying any more guilt anymore. 
There are some of us who have confessed this sin and we've confessed it and we've confessed it and we've confessed it and we've stopped it years ago, yet we're living with the consequence of that sin and based upon the consequence of that sin, we, we sort of carry it out in front of us and we're constantly reminding ourselves of that sin when God is saying, I've already cleansed and forgiven you of that sin, stop it. Don't carry the guilt, don't carry the remorse, don't carry the pain and the agony of that sin anymore. It's behind you, it's been nailed to the cross, you've been cleansed and you've been forgiven and it's no longer a reality in my relationship with you. And yet we carry it, Satan so loves that. He does. Because it, 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 it causes us to be virtually spiritually impotent over not just that sin, but any other sin. Because if God can't forgive us of this sin, then what can he forgive us? He can't forgive us of any sin. And we walk around powerless in this whole battle with sin and our depravity. For once we confess our sin, and confession is simply admitting that I have sinned. You call it by name. You ask for his forgiveness. You abandon that sin by repenting of it, and you affirm the forgiveness of God. We must affirm that we have been forgiven. Once we confess it, and we've laid it at his feet, and it's been nailed to the cross, that it's gone. And we're cleansed by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that washes us from the stain and the sin of that, the stain of that sin. And so we see the promise that we have as disciples, which is sure, but this promise is a promise that should be shared. Or well, we see in the text too, in verse, verse 12, it says, as we also forgive our debtors. Did you notice the past tense? As we, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And in verse 14 and 15, he talks about forgiving those who have trespassed against us. They have wronged us. And I want to quickly take a look at, at these very short things that I want you to write down because it's important. How do I then practice forgiveness toward those around me? There are four points that I don't believe are on the outline here, but they are very important. I want to, I want to quickly write them down and we'll be done. Number one, if I'm going to share it, I need to recognize God's purpose in this hurt, in this pain. God never wastes a single experience in your life. Let me say that again. God never wastes a single experience or a single moment of your life. And he takes every hurt, every heartache, every disappointment, every painful thing that's happened to you in, from someone else, and he will use it for a greater good, for a greater purpose. I mean, he said... Um, that he will work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. I'm reminded of, of Genesis chapter 50. A guy named Joseph who was put in a pit and they thought to kill their brother until suddenly a, a, a band of, of gypsies came by and they sold their brother as a slave. He later wound up in prison only to be elevated by God to a position of authority and blessing to the point where his brothers found themselves in a, in a vast famine throughout the land in front of their brother. And they were fearful of their lives because they knew what they had done to their brother. They told their dad that he had been eaten up by a ferocious animal and that he no longer existed. And now they are standing before their brother and they are 
They're un- uncertain about what's going to happen. But notice what, Je- what Jesus, and Joseph is a type of Jesus, but notice in verse 19 in Genesis 50 what Joseph said. Joseph said to them, do not fear for I in the, for I in the place, I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph recognized that in the evil that was done to him, God turned around and he used it for something incredibly good. He used it for his purpose and for his glory to bless others. And your heartache and your pain and your disappointment can be used by God for a greater purpose to be a blessing to others if you'll let him do that with your hurt, with your heartache, and with your pain. He won't waste your life, and he won't waste that heartache and that hurt that's been done to you. And some of you have experiences in your life that happened as a child or happened as a teenager for no fault of your own. These things were inflicted upon you, and you've always wondered, why me? And I want you to see what's been done to you as an opportunity for God to use that for his purpose and for his glory to bless others and to expand the kingdom. That's what Joseph learned. And that's what he did. Second thing I noticed, not only should we recognize God's purpose, but secondly, we should receive the burden. Receive the burden. You should embrace the burden. Colossians 3.12 says, and Paul has just gotten through telling a whole bunch of things about what they should put off. And now he's saying, here's some things I want you to put on. And notice what he says in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then he says, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. He's saying to these people, bear one another's burdens. Persevere in dealing with each other. He knew the complexities of this small band of believers in this very tight-knit fellowship. They were going to rub elbows with each other and and hurt each other and say things they shouldn't say and do things they shouldn't do and and feelings would get hurt and, and, and things would be said. And he says, bearing with one another, the idea is that they are to put up with all of the abuses and the hurts and the pains and the disappointments of everyone in the fellowship. And too often we are unwilling to just embrace the pain. And yet, as Christ's disciples, what did he do on the cross? He embraced the pain. He embraced the heartache. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And because he who knew no sin embraced our sin so that we can be reconciled with the Father. And I think there are some aspects about our pain that, that we, we just need to embrace it. We need to die to ourselves and embrace the heartache and the heart of the pain and lay it at the feet of Christ. And then three, we need to rest in God's grace. As we continue in Colossians 3.13, he says, if one has a complaint against another, anybody got a complaint against anybody in here? Uh, see Brother Gail at the end of the service. He'll be right here in the back. 
if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Forgive each other. How? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We must die as he died, and we must be gracious as he is gracious. And because we rely upon the grace of God, unmerited favor from God, we must then extend that unmerited favor to others who hurt us as well. And then lastly, we need to release the debt. You need to release the debt. Just release it. Just let it go. Don't harbor it. Don't hold on to it. Don't waddle in it. Don't remind yourself of the pain and the heartache and the hurt that they've caused. Just release it. Let it go. In Matthew chapter 18, it's an interesting story where Jesus, again, has just got through talking to his disciples about forgiveness. And uh, he gives this parable about a, about a king. He said, the kingdom of heaven is similar to a king who is calling forth his servants to pay off their debts. These servants, each and every one of them has a debt to pay to the king. And finally, one guy came up and he had this large sum, this, this immeasurable amount of money that he could not pay. And the king said, then for, therefore, because you can't pay, then I'm going to take everything you own and I'm going to sell your wife and your children as slaves in order to pay back the debt. The guy fell on his face and he pleaded and he begged for mercy. He begged for patience. He begged for time. And Jesus said the king, having pity on him, forgave him of this insurmountable debt that he could have never repaid. As soon as he got up from there, he went outside and he saw a man who, owned, who owed him just a very, very small portion of money. And it said he grabbed him by the collar and started choking him and demanding payment for this small sum of money. And the man pleaded and begged for time and for patience and for mercy, and he showed him none, and he had him thrown in prison until the debt was paid. Well, guess what? The rumor mill started. Facebook went out. Email shot out. Twitter went out. And pretty soon the king heard, the king summoned the man, and he said, these are the words of Jesus. And he says, listen to him. He, and th this is what the Jesus said. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he concludes in verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Where are we to forgive? From the heart. Why is that? Because the heart is where bitterness resides. To forgive from the heart. You can say, well, I've forgiven them, and every time they're around, <gasps> or you give them the, the silent treatment. Or if they come in that door, you go out that door. Or when they come in the room, you look down. You ever done any of that? Or your husband comes in from work, and ladies, you give him the silent treatment. Or you're as cold as ice when it's time for bedtime. 
and we harbor and we hold on to things in our heart. And yet Jesus says, think about how much we've been forgiven. And in light of what we have been forgiven, how can we hold each other accountable for what we've done? For what we owe each other is far less than what we owe God. And for those of us who don't forgive, we've not experienced genuine forgiveness because we forgive as we've been forgiven. But when we walk around like Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and pretend like we're perfect and we're holy and we're righteous and we're, we're, we're the cat's meow and everybody else is beneath us, forgiveness is not a reality because those kind of people don't understand how much grace they need from the Father for the sins they've committed against him. But when we recognize our own humanity, our own depravity, and how much sin we've committed against God, we have a tendency to be more gracious to those who hurt us. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Let me say that again. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When you sin against God, you're going to need his forgiveness. And when others sin against you, you're going to need to forgive them. Your spouse, chances are, will do something that will hurt your feelings before the end of the day. Someone in this room may rub elbows with you in a wrong way, and you may have your feelings hurt. Somebody you work with, somebody you live next to, somebody you engage in sports with. Chances are there's somebody right now that you could call by name. You're holding and harboring on to some bitterness, some resentment, some anger. Some, you have a right to your hurt and to your pain, and I know that it was unjust, and I know that you didn't deserve what you received, but if you don't let it go, if you don't release it, it's going to affect and hurt you more than it will them. Trust me. That's why Jesus says forgive, because he says to us, I believe here, is that it hurts the one who holds on to the bitterness more than it does the one we're bitter toward. And it affects our relationship with God. And the longer we hold on to it, so let it go and give it to God and release them from their debt and live free. So let's close with an invitation. And the question is simply this. Is there someone this morning that you need just come to the Father and you need to forgive them? You're just going to forgive them. I know. What about the repentance? Well, if you, have to, if you feel a need to go to them and say, look, you've hurt my feelings. This is what you did. That's what you said. This is we need to talk about it. And if you need to do that, that's fine. I don't know about you, but I, I just choose just to forgive. <laughs> just, I just do. It's a lot easier that way. He said, she said, you said, they said, we said, we did. I didn't mean all that starts going on. I, I, just, I just release. I just let it go. You need to do that today? Who could you call by name right now that you need to forgive? Lastly, do you need to be forgiven? 
Is there something you've said or done that, that you're well aware of and you're, you, you know right now that you've done something to someone else? You need to go to them and say, you know what? I apologize. I'm sorry. I repent. I shouldn't have said, shouldn't have done, didn't mean. Well, maybe I meant it, but I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I repent and be reconciled. Or maybe you just need to come honestly before God and say, you know what, Lord? I need your forgiveness today. I admit this is what I've done. I need to ask for your forgiveness. I will abandon and repent of that sin. And I will affirm your forgiveness when I leave this place. I will lay it down, never to pick up it again, and walk out and be free. Let's pray. Your